Awesome. Well, uh, like I said, it's good to be with you. We are on the front end of a series this fall, working our way through the Old Testament book of Nehemiah together. Uh, Nehemiah is a book in the Bible that's often overlooked or accidentally kind of, I think, approached as kind of like a Christian leadership version of Aesop's fables, where uh, Nehemiah is this great leader that we kind of learn some lessons from that we can apply to our own lives. And and don't get me wrong, uh, we, there is a lot that we can learn from Nehemiah. He really legitimately is a great leader, uh, but he is not the point of the book at all. Uh, and what he accomplishes is not the point either. Instead, like every other book in the Bible, uh, the book of Nehemiah is really a book that's all actually about God. Specifically, what this book is trying to get across to us, is trying to paint this picture to us, is, is that God is a sovereign and faithful God who keeps his promises that he's a sovereign and faithful God who keeps his promises. And and what happens throughout the story, as we'll see, is that God uses Nehemiah to bring about the fulfillment of promises that he has made to his people to forgive them and to redeem them and to once again gather them into a community of people who would live for the praise of his glory and ultimately to be a people through whom he would one day send Jesus, the, the one who would rescue and redeem all people from the greatest enemies of all, of Satan and sin and death. And and so Nehemiah ultimately is not a story about a great leader, but it's a story about a great God. And one who is uh, sovereign and who rules and reigns over everyone and everything, everywhere, and who is faithful to keep his promises. But Nehemiah is not only a book about God, it's also a book about God's people and it's a, it's a book as well as story about how God's people respond in dependence and faith in God and his promises by recommitting themselves to being and to building a community who will live for the praise of his glory, which is the very thing that God's people have always been set apart to do. And so we saw in chapter one how that story begins with God giving Nehemiah his heart for his name and his glory in the city of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah opens the book we saw, which is made up mostly of his memoirs and journal entries by by uh, talking about how he received a report from his brother Hananiah about how the walls of Jerusalem for 140 years and through waves of efforts were still lying in piles of ruin and rubble. They had been conquered by Babylon as a result of their own sin and rebellion against God. And and although this wasn't new information to Nehemiah, what we see is that it hits him in a new way because what was happening is that God was giving Nehemiah his heart for his name and, and his glory, and he was causing him to see the state of Jerusalem and its people the way that God sees it. And you see, the reality is that, is that in the Old Testament, the city of Jerusalem was God's city. It was the place where he had decided that his name would dwell and his presence and his name would be known from. And so the state of the walls of that city and its people were, were inextricably linked with the very name and reputation of God. And, and so their dilapidated condition, uh, Nehemiah realizes what it's doing is really proclaiming a message of, of shame and disgrace about the name of God. And so because Nehemiah delights to uh, revere God's name and to honor him, he knows that he's got to do something about that. And so after months of praying and planning, we saw it in, the, in chapter two how he goes to the great Persian king Artaxerxes, whom he serves as a cupbearer, and, and he makes this incredibly bold request. He, he basically asked the king for about a year off of work to go rebuild the walls around his hometown. And if that wasn't enough, he, he basically asked the king to purchase personally endorse and fund that rebuilding project, not to mention the fact that King Artaxerxes had just a few years prior uh, explicitly said he didn't want Jerusalem to ever get rebuilt. 
And what happens is he says yes to everything. And it's this incredible miracle that, that is at work and in, in that God is changing the heart of Nehemiah. And what happens is that Nehemiah, he is, uh, the fact that the king's response is so miraculous, that's not lost on him. He, he gets that. He, he says he gives all the credit for, for that, saying that it's because of God's gracious hand being on him that the king granted his request. And so armed with the clear support of not only of God, but also of the king, he embarks on the kind of 900 plus mile journey would have taken about three or four months to get to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he takes a few days to rest and recuperate. And, and then he takes just a few trusted people with him. And he does this kind of covert nighttime survey of the walls, right? And, and what he finds is that just like his brother had reported, these walls, which once stood 15 to 20 feet high and three to four feet wide and one to two miles around in circumference, were just laying in piles of rubble strewn across the countryside. It gets so bad at one point that we saw at the end of chapter two, he has to get off of his horse. Like he can't even walk, he can't even ride his horse around. It's like just so, so disheveled. And so what Nehemiah realizes is that, is that it's not going to be a simple task. It's going to be a monumental kind of task. And, but now that he's seen it for himself, he goes to his fellow Israelites that had returned from exile over the past 70 years and were living in the surrounding countryside around the great city of Jerusalem. And he, he tells them what God's put in his heart to do about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and removing the disgrace uh, that its shameful condition was staining God's people with and therefore God's own name with. And he tells them about all that God's already done in changing the heart of King Artaxerxes and in, in allowing him to endorse and to sponsor the, the rebuilding of these efforts. And he backs up those claims by standing firm in, in the face of ridicule and opposition in the midst of uh, leaders from the surrounding areas who are really opposed to what God's doing in the city of Jerusalem. And what you see by the end of chapter 2 is that, is that God's people are all in. They're excited about being a part of rebuilding this work. They see that God is in it. They see that he has been preparing the way, and so they are excited to be a part of it. And it says at the end that they begin the work of rebuilding the walls. And as we pick up the story this morning, what we are going to see is a giant list of names of all the people who are a part of rebuilding this monumental project. And if you came this morning looking for baby names you have hit the jackpot, right? Like, you are, you are in, right? Like, you are, we got some for you, okay? So buckle up for that, right? Uh, in all seriousness, though, I think it can be really easy for us to get to parts of the Bible like this, whether it's a list of names or a genealogy or, or something of the like. It can be easy for us to think that, like, we should just skip over this. There's probably not really anything there for us. Like, it's just, we don't even know any of these people. We don't have any connection with them. Like, we don't, we don't really need to know what's going on there. And, and we often skip over it. Even some commentaries just skip right over it. But the truth is that while some parts of Scripture might seem more interesting or maybe immediately relevant to our lives, uh, what God's Word teaches us and what Paul reminds Timothy of is that all of the Bible is God's Word. And all of it's useful for the people of God. And so the same is true here. And what I want to show you this morning as we study this big list of names is, is how this is really not just a list of names, but it's actually this beautiful picture of God's people working together to be a part of building the kingdom of God. And, and therefore, I think there is a really profound glimpse as we look at this passage into what the church should really look like as God's God's people in the New Testament. And so, although we are not Nehemiah and our calling is not to be a part of rebuilding some physical wall, the reality is that Nehemiah's God is our God. And as 1 Peter 2 tells us that we are being built up 
as the walls of a spiritual building, the church. And so, like the Israelites in the Old Testament, we too have been set apart by God to live for the praise of his glory, showing the world who he is and what he's like as we, as we participate in the building of his kingdom. And so, uh, there is absolutely something for us here this morning in this big list of names, and I can't wait to show it to you. So, let's pray, and uh, we'll dive into Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning. God, thanks for our time together. We are grateful for you, and we are grateful for your word, and and we're just grateful, Jesus, that you have uh, kept it for us so that in it we might know you. And so, God, as we study, we just, uh, as we do every week, we just really want to come humbly again and say, God, without you empowering our time together, uh, it's a waste. But we know that you love to meet us in our study of your word and that you want to empower us to uh, not only to hear it rightly, but to, but to gladly put ourselves under its good authority. And so we ask, Jesus, that um, for our good and for your glory, you might empower us to not just hear your word, but to uh, respond rightly to it. And so we need you for all of that, and we wait expectantly knowing that you love to do that. And so we ask that you would this morning. For our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Nehemiah 3. It's going to be a few minutes of your life. You can't get back. Uh, and uh, the key also, if you're ever reading uh, a bunch of lists of names, is, that, uh, is to know that no one else knows how they're pronounced either. And so read quick and read confident, okay? And so that's what I'm going to do, right? And if you're like, oh, that's how it's pronounced, be like, I don't know, it might be, right? And so we'll buckle up together, all right? All right, Nehemiah chapter 3. Eliashib the high priest and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. And they dedicated it and set its doors in place, rebuilding as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. And the men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. And the fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hanessa, and they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And Merimoth, son of Uriah, and the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Mesholam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Banna, also made repairs. And the next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors." The Jeshana gate was repaired by Joiada and the son of Paseah and Meshullam, son of Besodei. And they laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men of Gibeon and Mizpah and Melatiah of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of the trans-Euphrates. And Uziel, son of Hariah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And Rephaiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of, half of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. And adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumath, made repairs opposite his house. And Hatush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. And Malchiah, son of Harim, and Hashab, son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. And Shalem, son of Halolesh, and ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. And the valley gate was repaired by Hanum and the residents of Zenoa, and they rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. And they also repaired a thousand cubits, it's about 1,500 feet of the wall as far as the dung gate. And the dung gate was repaired by Malchijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of beth Harakarim, And he built it and puts its doors with their bolts and their bars in place. 
And the fountain gate was repaired by Shalan, son of uh, Kol Hose, a ruler of the district of Mizpah. And he rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. And he also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's garden as far as the steps going down from the city of David. And beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Beth-zur, made repairs to a point opposite of the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. And next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rahum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kilah, carried out the repairs for his district. And next to him, the repairs were made from their fellow Levites under Binuai, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kilah. And next to him, Azer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. And next to him, Baruch, son of uh, Zabai, uh, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Elisha, the high priest. And next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of Elisha's house to the end of it. And the repairs next to him were made by the priests from the surrounding regions. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house and next to them. And Azariah, son of Masaiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs next to uh, beside his house. And next to him, Binuai, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's uh, house to the angle of the corner. And Palal, son of Uzziah, uh, worked uh, opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the place near the court of the garden. Next to him, Pedaiah, son of Parash, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel uh, made repairs up to the point opposite the water gate towards the east and the projecting tower. And next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower down to the wall of Ophel. And above of the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. And next to them, Zadok, son of Emer, uh, made repairs uh, opposite his house. And next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the, the guard at the east gate made repairs. And next to him, Hananiah, son of, son of uh, Shelemiah, and Hanum, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. And next to them, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. And next to him, Malchijah and one of the goldsmiths made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants and opposite the inspection gate and as far as the room above the corner and between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Woo! We made it, right? We made it. Do not quote me on any of those pronunciations, right? Okay? All right, so it, like I said, it can be easy for us to look at passages like this and just think, what? Why, why are we reading this? Like, what are we, why are we spending our time studying this? This is just a list of a bunch of people's names that we don't know and don't show up again in the Bible. And what is the point, right? And I think I said, like, like earlier, I think what's so important that we see here is that you have to see the story of Nehemiah as a part of the bigger story of God's picture of redemption. And when you see that the story is ultimately a story about God and about God's people responding in faith to him, then when you zoom out that way, you can kind of pull back and you see that, that what really this is is a picture of God's people coming together to be a part of building his kingdom. And so the reality is that there are so, there's so much here for us as God's church, as his people to think about when it comes to us being his people, building his kingdom. And so just a, a few things I want to point out this morning as we dive into this passage. And the first is, is simply this, is that one of the first things that sticks out to you as you read the passage is how you see that there are people from every part of society that are involved in the work here. 
There are people from every part of the society. Chapter 3 opens by highlighting how Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests worked to rebuild the sheep gate and an adjoining section of wall. That would have been a a section that was kind of near the temple, and and the sheep gate would have been a place where which sacrifices would have come into the temple. And so they're working on a section there. And and right next to them, we see that there's the men of Jericho, which if you know anything about the Bible, those dudes certainly knew how to build walls, right? And so you got religious professionals and and, and building professionals, right? You got contractors and pastors who are working side by side next to each other on this project. And you've also got rulers and regular dudes, people from different societal classes, right? Aside from the the nobles of Tekoa who are apparently too proud to actually put their backs to work and actually get something done, you see listed eight other rulers or leaders of various districts in and around the city of Jerusalem helping out and serving. And, And their names are listed right next to a bunch of regular dudes who just have no fancy titles and no prestigious names and they're just regular guys who are serving and and a part of building the kingdom and part of building the walls here but and it's not just men working on the wall we see in verse 12 how one guy's daughters are involved in the rebuilding efforts and so you've got men and women and sons and daughters and parents and children all serving together and and we don't have time to get into all the details of this but just two things i want to highlight just really two two side points to, to to put on first is that Parents, just as an encouragement to you, the data overwhelmingly shows that it's not just kids who attend church that are more likely to follow Jesus as they grow up, it's kids who serve in the church and who are a part of that community in real and meaningful ways and who give themselves not just to receiving something from it, but to being a part of it that are dramatically more likely to follow Jesus in their lives as adults. And and so uh, that's just a reality. And so you see this dude here, he's involving his kids and his daughters in this project and in the things that are going on here, right? And so it's just so important that we see that as part of it. And, and also, I just want to say this as well, while we talk about some daughters who are serving in our church, from the very beginning of our church, um, the Moral Girls, the three of them, you guys have always been people who have served in our community, who have, who have given of the, your time and your efforts and sacrifice to be a part of that. And, and so I just want to say like how grateful that I am personally for you guys and all the ways that you guys serve in our church and are a part of that. And I know that there are far more people who are a part of our church who are grateful for you guys being a part of that. And so I just want you to know that people see that and they notice that and that's, that's valuable and good. And so thank you for that. And so you've got, you've got men and women and sons and daughters and parents and children and families all serving together. You've got some goldsmiths and some perfumers helping out with the wall, right? Those dudes were serving way outside of their giftings, right? Like, you know, like a perfumer helping out with the wall. Like, I'm not even sure a perfumer knows what a rock is, right? Like, is that, is that are we talking about diamonds? Is that like what it is we're talking about here? So you got people serving in all different kinds of plays. The picture that you get is a one where everyone is playing their part. Everyone is a part of it. Nobody's riding the bench. Nobody's just watching from the stands. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of situation because the reality is, is that building the kingdom of God is a mission that requires not just some of God's people, but all of us. Not just some, but all of us. You see, and it was that case in Nehemiah's day. It is in ours as well. Alistair Begg, one pastor, he puts it this way. He says, if as the church we're going to undertake the mission of God given us by Jesus to go into all of the world and preach the gospel and to make disciples of every nation, it will demand the mobilization of the totality 
of the people of God. Everybody. It takes everybody because the mission that God's given us is his people. The mission he gave his people in the Old Testament here in, in this story to rebuild their walls and the mission that he gives us as his people in the New Testament, the church, is a mission that requires everybody. You see, we live in a world that is hyper-focused on the individual. And it can be easy to think that the only thing that really matters is your own faith and your own walk with God and your own relationship with him. But the truth is, is that the Bible does not have a concept of a relationship with God that is not necessarily and fundamentally connected with the community of God's people. There is no concept in scripture of just a individualized, personalized faith that's disconnected from the people of God. You see, God's purposes for his people can never be achieved alone. 1 Corinthians 12, we see, as well as places in Romans and Ephesians, we see how Paul describes the New Testament church as the body of Christ. And he explains how like a physical body is made up of many different and indispensable parts, so too is the church. When you're trying to get across it, right, there's no appendixes in the body of Christ. There's no, there's no people in the body of Christ where you're like, I don't know what they're for, right? Like, we just probably don't really need them. Just, you know, just stick them on the side, right? If we got to get rid of them, fine, right? There isn't anyone like that in the body of Christ. The reality is that if you don't play the role that God has given you in the community, and if you don't serve in ways that God's appointing and empowering for you to do, then the whole community suffers, and the mission that we've been given by God to build his kingdom is actually hindered. That's the reality of the way the Bible talks about that. And so God has uniquely, uh, he has and is uniquely appointing and empowering each of us on his behalf in ways that he is not doing in the lives of others. And so we need everyone, which is why as a Christian, you cannot opt out of the body of Christ. It's not like an optional thing if you got extra time on your hands to like be a part of the body of Christ and of the community of the church. And so saying no to being a, the church, being a part of the church or just to be fine with endlessly showing up but never plugging in and never serving and never giving and never being a part of the mission of making disciples, is, that's why that's a problem. And that's why fundamentally it's, it's ultimately a rejection of our very identity and the purpose for which God saved us as his people. And so the picture that we see of God's kingdom-building people, it begins with everybody saying yes to being a part of the work of building God's kingdom. But that's not the only thing that we see in this picture, right? The second thing I want to show you is that although everyone is involved in the work, not everyone is playing the same part. Although everyone's involved, not everybody's playing the same part. We, some people are just working on a small section of the wall, while others like Hanan and residents of Zenoa in verse 13, we read about how they rebuilt a whole gate area as well as 1,500 feet of this giant wall themselves. Or the dudes from Tekoa, who in spite of the fact that their nobles were too proud or too lazy to actually help out, not only build their section in verse 5, but are mentioned again in verse 27 as taking on a whole another section that they weren't even assigned to in the beginning. And yet what you see is that all of these people are listed here as playing an equally important part in the project. None of them are heralded as doing something, some amazing thing that no one else is heralded for doing. They're just all a part of the same list of people. And you see, like we already said, God asked different people 
to play different roles in building his kingdom. And he empowers people in different ways to do that. And so it doesn't matter what you have been asked to do or how important that project seems to you. What matters is the one who asked you to do it and the one who empowered you to. Just a few months ago, we studied 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, and we saw how the Corinthians were were, uh, they were either puffed up and proud or self-conscious and feeling inferior based on how externally impressive or important they perceive their spiritual gifts to be. And Paul corrects them both by, he's telling them, right? He says that no spiritual gift, no spirit-appointed and empowered opportunity to minister on God's behalf, right, is any more important or valuable than anyone else or any other way to do it. It doesn't matter how ordinary or spectacular the opportunity to minister that God gives us. Whatever he calls you to do by his spirit matters and is important, not because of the task itself, but because of the one who gives it to you. And all of them are equally dependent on him. And so so don't think for a minute that what God has appointed and empowered for you to do by his spirit is any less or any more important than what he asks of anyone else to do. All of them are empowered and appointed by him. The org chart in the church, right? The org chart of importance in God's kingdom has two layers, and it's God and everyone else, right? There's only two layers, right? None of us are more important than any of the rest of us. And that is good news because what it means is that all of us get to equally be in awe of God together because he uses us for his purposes, none of which any of us are qualified or worthy of on our own. And so whatever it is that God invites us into is an honor and a privilege to be a part of with him. And when that clicks for you and when you get that, what happens is there's a few things that will happen. Number one, you're going to stop comparing yourselves to others and the roles that God has given others and others and asked them to play. And you're going to stop feeling superior or inferior to others based on whatever roles it is that they've been asked to play or that you have. And instead, you will be glad to play whatever role God gives you, however big or small, however seemingly important or not, right? Unlike the Tekoa nobles who saw manual labor and submitting to someone's authority as beneath them, you'll be like Malchijah, the ruler of the district of Beth Herakarim, right? Who, who didn't see the task of rebuilding the dung gate as beneath the ruler of a district, but as a task that was needed to be done. And instead, he was glad to be listed among the people of God who said yes to building the kingdom of God and playing whatever part he was asked to do in it. And so you stop comparing yourself to others and you'll be glad to play whatever role God gives you. And third, I think the last thing that's going to happen is that you're going to stop asking the question, where can you use your gifts? And instead, you're going to start asking the question, uh, like the goldsmiths and the perfumers did, about where there is a need. And you'll start asking, God, I need you to empower me in ways that are far outside my giftings and my abilities and my skills to meet a need that is here, because your kingdom has a need, and I want to be a part of it. And you're going to start to ask the questions instead of what meets your own needs and how, what kind of fulfills your own sense of worth and giftings. And you'll start asking the question about where there is a need and where God can empower you to meet those kinds of needs. You realize that sometimes God asks you to do something that is in your wheelhouse 
And sometimes he asks perfumers to pick up broken stones and build a wall. Because that's what has to get done. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, right? And so you have all these different people working together, everyone playing a part, doing whatever was needed, which brings us to the last thing I just want to point out here, right? Because what's so striking is that in, in spite of all of their differences, there's this incredible unity of the people, right? Over and over and over and over in the passage, you see next to them and next to them and next to them and next to them. And everyone is working on the same project. They're about the same purpose. They're about the same mission. And yes, some people were building a section of the wall that they had some personal vested interest in, like the other, like the people that were building a part of the wall that was near their home specifically. You saw that listed a number of times. Or maybe like the priests or the Levites who were working on the section of the wall that was near the temple, right? A place that they was a part of the city that they were very involved in, right? But when you read the list of the 40 plus groups of people that were fixing all the different sections of the wall, the 10 various gates throughout the city, is that the majority of those people were just working on whatever section they got assigned. The vast majority. There's even people like those we read about in verse 17 from the district of Kyla who came to help out and rebuild the wall, though they lived over 20 miles away from Jerusalem. That's a long trip, right? That's a long trip by foot. And they weren't going to experience any personal benefit from the walls of Jerusalem getting completed. And yet they're still there listed amongst everyone else who chose to give themselves to the, the building of this wall and the, the projects of there. And so all these people are working together, serving there wherever there is need, some in areas of their skill and gifting, most outside of their areas of skill or gifting. And some in sections they had some personal vested stake in and most in sections that would not personally benefit them. Because what happens, you see, there was something bigger than themselves, something bigger than their own personal gain that was driving them, that was motivating them. We saw in chapter two how Nehemiah comes to them and the motivations he gives are all rooted in the pursuit of the glory of God and the, and the honoring of his name. You see, it was the glory of God and the advancing of his name and his kingdom that bound these people together. And what they longed for is that God's city would again regain its splendor so that, and that God would get the credit for it. What it caused them to do is to give themselves humbly and sacrificially and generously to the work of the kingdom. I see, and the same should be true of the church. And by God's grace, I see that happening all over in our church. I could go on for a long time about the ways that I see people serving outside of their areas of gifting and ways that I see people serving in areas that do not personally benefit them. But one of the most striking ways that I see that in our church is that some of you, so you serve in kids' ministry because you have kids. And you're really, like you're invested in that, serving in those ways. Because you got kids and you want them to grow up to love Jesus. And so you're invested in that. But many of you, not just a few, many of you, you serve in kids' ministry uh, even though you do not have kids at all or your kids are long since grown and yet you still choose to serve there not because it's some personal benefit to you or to your family or I might add because you just especially love it. Many of you serve in areas that do not personally benefit you because you realize that it's actually an opportunity to serve the greater family of God, which you realize is actually your family too. And because what you long for most 
is for God to be glorified and him to be worshipped. And you are willing to do whatever has to get done. Because that's what you long for. I just want to encourage you this morning, church. So you look at this big list of names. A bunch of people you've never heard of and that I mispronounced. Right? This is not a list of impressive people who went on to do more impressive things with their lives. It's a list of regular people who said yes to being a part of building the kingdom of God. And the truth is, is that they have, by, by and large, absolutely been forgotten by the world. There are no songs sung about them. There are no books written in their honor telling their stories. And yet the great king and the creator of the universe we see took note of them. And he decided, he saw fit that their names and the humble roles they played in rebuilding a wall should be remembered as a great part of his story of redemption. That should floor us, church. That should floor us. You see, the reality is, is that what we see in this picture is not just a list of names, but a, a list of people that God sees, who he took note of, who is his, whose names he is well aware of. And the reality is that that is true, that God takes note of our lives and of our days and of our service and of our ministry, and God knows your name and he knows what you are doing unto him. And the Bible is clear that there is honor that comes from God for those who will serve him faithfully. Hear me, not those who serve him impressively, not those who serve him influentially, for those who will serve him faithfully. You see, and that's what you see here in this picture. There's a group of 40-some-plus names that are listed countless others which are a part of the families listed here. All of which given to the purpose of building the kingdom of God because of what they longed for was the glory of God to be made known in their city. Now, before we close this morning, I just want to take a moment and just be abundantly clear. Uh, the point of this sermon is not uh, get to work, Right? The point of the sermon is not like, oh, look at all these people and all the hard work they did. You should probably work hard for God's kingdom too. Make it happen, right? Suck it up. Try harder, right? We got really got to pull our bootstraps up. The truth is, and I just want to be clear, the truth is God does not need you. He did not need these people either. He could absolutely have done all of this without any of them. But he chooses to involve his people in the work that he is doing so that we might share in his joy as getting to be a part of what he's doing. Church, the only way that you get to joyfully share in God's kingdom-building work is when you see that Jesus is the one who has already done all of the real work for you. When the work that you are being called into is not a work that's about you. It's not a work that's trying to merit or manipulate something out of God, but it's a work that comes in a response to him. Then that changes it. You see, when you realize that you and I were made for worship and to serve and to worship God, and yet instead of choosing to worship and serve him, we choose to worship and serve ourselves. And that's the essence of what sin is. And instead of rejecting and punishing us as we rightly deserved, instead what God chooses to do is come himself 
himself in the person and the work of Jesus to live the life of worship and obedience and service that you and I were all meant and called to live, made for, and whose calling we have rejected full sale. So that's through faith in him. His life lived on our behalf. His death died as punishment for our sin that we might be forgiven and cleansed and adopted into his family and invited into being a part of the redeeming and renewing work he is doing in the lives of others. When you get that, it totally changes you. And so before you go to work building the kingdom, the question I want to ask you is this, is have you trusted and are you resting in the king's finished work on your behalf? You see, religion is all about getting God to respond to something you do for him. But the gospel is all about responding to what God has already done for you. See, the reality, church, is that we don't participate in the building of God's kingdom. We don't give ourselves sacrificially and humbly and relentlessly and passionately for the purposes of his kingdom because we have to. We do it because we get to. The great king and creator of the universe invites us into his joy-filled kingdom-building work. And he wants to involve us in it that we might have his heart and we might have his passion for the things that he is doing. And so we get to joyfully say yes, not because we are important or impressive or influential and needed, but because we are the opposite of those things and yet have still been invited. And what that does is it fills us with a joy and a longing to give ourselves to the king and to give ourselves towards building his kingdom however he invites us into that. And remembering and celebrating all that he's done for us, is that's what we're part of doing every week when we take communion. You see, communion, we're remembering and celebrating that the great king and the creator of the universe had his body and blood broken and shed for us. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you. Instead, it's a, it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember, to remember all that Jesus has already done for us, the work that he has finished on our behalf so that out of full of joy and gratitude for him, we might give our lives back to being a part of his kingdom building. Not because we have to, but because we get to. Not out of duty and obligation, but out of joy. And so, as we sing and as we worship and as you remember the gospel together in song this morning, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if your trust and your hope is in his, his finished work on your behalf, which joyfully motivates and empowers your work to build his kingdom, then whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right and you can dip the bread in the juice or you can take one of the uh, packs back to your seat so you don't need to be a member here you just need to belong to jesus but if not if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who jesus is and if you really want to follow him and if he's a king and a god that you really want to submit to and surrender to and that one that you can trust i just want you to know how welcome you are here how grateful we are that you would join us and that you would be a part of this community. But I want to encourage you, God's not after rituals. He's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that trusts and surrenders to him. And so if you do that this morning, then go back and take communion. But if you're in process, that's okay. Hold off. You're welcome here still. And so as we sing and remember the gospel this morning, wherever you're at, I want to encourage you, talk with God.
Have you trusted his work on your behalf to motivate and empower you to work unto him and to be a part of his building his kingdom? And just ask him, where is he calling you to join in the kingdom building work that he is doing? And what does it look like for you to say yes to God's kingdom and to his purposes wherever there is a need? Let's pray. God, we're grateful for you and for your word, and we're thankful that we get to gather together to worship you this morning. And, and so we're thankful, Jesus, and in this picture, we see uh, your people working together to build your kingdom, not out of duty and obligation, but out of a longing for your name to be worshiped and for you to get all the glory as a city and as a people shine unto you. And so, God, that's what we want for our church as well. God, we want you to be building us into a people who are a spiritual temple, one in which our lives and our communities declare your goodness and your glory, showing the world and our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers what you are like. And so use us, King Jesus, to make much of you. Empower us by your spirit and enable us to say yes, not just to serving where we think we are gifted, but to serving wherever it is you would call us to. Thanks, that's what we see in your word this morning. Help us to be a people who hope and trust in you like that. Amen.